Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. I'd like to make it sort of a, a conversation, so to speak, as we go through it. So obviously, if you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Ecclesiastes, all right, and take a look. We'll be making reference there. Now, of course, sometimes Andy Williams will start singing, it's the most wonderful time of the year, and you'll hear that everywhere. But it is a time of year when the days are shortened quite a bit. And the darkness comes so early, and it's almost this time of year, it seems as if night's starting to get the ascendancy over the day. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like when that sun goes down before five, it gets dark, it starts to get cold. And as all of us have experienced, there are some nights when we're going through difficult times that can seem somewhat endless. There's no end to the night at all. When all you're really desiring, all you're really hoping for is just a peaceful slumber, a good night's sleep. But sometimes we're haunted by anxiety, by difficulties or uncertainty. And in many ways, as we look at it, our troubled world, it seems at times as if our world is sort of enveloped in darkness and sin. You know what I mean? There's sometimes you just the news, the things coming in, it just seems to be very, very dark indeed. And of course, so much in our broken world has been estranged from God, separated from God. He's been removed in so many ways. And despite the fact that we all have this technology now that supposedly keeps us all connected, there's been a phenomenal increase in loneliness and isolation on the part of many, many people in our world. And for many, it's become very difficult even to envision what's mercy look like? What's forgiveness look like? What does love really look like when you see it? And uh, the great Latin poet Virgil once wrote, and I'll give you a little bit of Latin. You, can, you don't mind a little Latin. We'll give a translation too. Lacrime rerum et mentum mortalia tancunt. There are tears in things, and all things that are doomed to die touch the heart. But within that human heart, there is a very deep, deep longing. And that kind of longing and that type of concern that sometimes will keep us awake at night is something that really had a great impact on our author who we're going to look at tonight. Now, how many of you were really good students and read this ahead of time? Not that many good students. Okay, put your hands up high. Okay, let's hear a round of applause for the people who did their homework. That's, that's impressive. That's really impressive. Okay, for those of you who did your homework and did read, if you thought my opening rocks were slightly depressing, tendency towards melancholia, that's true. Because if you read the book... <laughs> okay, anyone have a general impression? Like, how did this get in the canon? <laughs> I'm serious. This is, this, is a tough, this is a very tough read. It's a tough book. Jeremy, anyone have just like to share their impression with the group? Go ahead. I um, 
I actually found, as I was trying to figure out, as Father Scalia said, that he couldn't imagine anybody being jazzed at Ecclesiastes. And I, so I went through it, and I'm an analyst. I went through it very, very carefully. But about every 20th line, there is a gem. And it's short, and it leads back to God. Oh, so you think there is a little silver lining there? Well, I oh. saw it. Okay, I'm happy, you know, I love that you're seeing. No, no, that's fine. Anybody else care to share a reaction to the reading? Yes. There are some silver linings, and I like the part about having the wine and having a good time to think that there was an afterlife, if there was any reason. Yeah, yeah. Pretty dark when it comes to that. As a matter of fact, if you just take a first look at it, it sounds like several times he's basically saying, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you're going to die. No, I thought that was pagan. So it does seem kind of pessimistic. This is not the type of text you'd want to have read as a hold on the suicide hotline. No, no. Okay? I mean, it, it, would, it would be difficult. But he does talk a lot about vanity. Right at the very beginning, he sort of starts off, the words of David's son. Traditionally, this was attributed to Solomon, the wisest man, until somebody else who comes, who's more than a man. But anyway, the wisest man. And he starts off right at the beginning in verse 2. If you have your book, chapter 1, verse 2, take a look at that. Vanity of vanities, says Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all things are vanity. Now, when you read that, those of you who did read it, you just heard it now, what do you think he means by vanity? It's okay if we dialogue, isn't it? Okay, good, good. Just tell us. I don't know. I'm, I'm confused myself. Yes, what do you think? Do you think he means life by vanity? Everything's life? No, everything in our lives. Oh, all, all what? It's all vanity. Yeah, but you can't tell me what something means by using the same word. <laughs> you, that, that doesn't define me. What, do, what, does vani what does vanity mean? Futility. Futility. Wait, you're not. Now, is this your thought or are you looking at a footnote? <laughs> nah, darn. You can't trust anything. Any footnote after 1975, you can't trust. <laughs> Does it mean anything like Carly Simon's old song? I'm kind of dating myself. <laughs> Sang with Mick Jagger, you're so vain, you probably think this song is... Is that what it's talking about? It's self-absorbed. Self That's a lot of times you think vanity, you know? There used to be an old quote, but we can't use it anymore because you get stoned to death. You mention it. Something that, yeah, mankind, your name is vanity. Yeah, okay, so we'll skip that. You never heard that quote before? Okay, well, it's not about mankind. It was a feminine. And, okay, we'll move on from there. Yes? Everything is mundane, worldly. Everything's sort of mundane and worldly. Now, when he says vanity of vanities, it's like the superlative, right? The highest vanity imaginable. So let's look at what he's talking about, and maybe we kind of unpack. I think you're on to something, but let's, let's try to unpack. It relates to life. It relates to the footnote and some of those things. But let's, let's try to pull out here what's going to go on. Now, he starts off by asking a question, and it's a rhetorical question. What profit has man from all the labor which he toils at under the sun? 
What's he expect you to answer? Nothing. Nothing. Nada. All right. You work hard. You do all this stuff. What profit you get? Nothing. Now, it starts out pretty negative. That's, that's fairly negative, right? All of you are working, doing certain things. But he says, what profit comes from all the labor in which he toils it under the sun? Then he starts going on. Look, at, it's, it's just going to get darker. I'm, I'm sorry. It's not going to get lighter. For Maybe it'll be lighter later, but that's what Christmas comes. It is Advent after all. All right. So he goes on. One generation passes and another comes, but the world forever stays. Now he's saying that to you because he wants to bother you. He's bothered, so he wants you to share in being bothered with him. What's he contrasting there? What's he contrasting? One generation passes and another comes, but the world forever stays. What's being contrasted there? Come on, you guys, let's go. Let's look at the nouns. Look at the nouns. Look at the subjects that are popping out to at you there. The first thing he talks about is what? Generation, right? He's talking about generation. And he contrasts generation with what? With the world, okay? Now, there's something that bothers him about generation, and there's something that bothers him about the world. What characterizes the generation? It passes. Oh, who said that? You are not far from the kingdom. All right. <laughs> One generation comes and goes. So it's always coming and going. Probably happy the baby boomers are leaving. All right. So one generation. I resemble that remark. All right. So one generation comes and then another one goes. But the world forever stays. A hundred years from now, will the Blue Ridge Mountains be out there? Will you be out there? No. Is there something wrong? Well, now, wait, wait a second. Is there something wrong? I mean, generations come and go. The world's always there. It's always the same. Why is he bothered by that? Why should we be slightly bothered by that? We haven't changed. What's that? We haven't changed. The generations come and go. Just come and go, come and go. What's more important, to be part of a generation or to be the world? There's a gorgeous moon out there right tonight. You saw that. You know what we call that? It's an advent moon. You know what we call it an advent moon? Because it's a full moon in advent. All right, so... <laughs> There's a beautiful moon out there, but if I asked you right now, would you rather be you, or would you rather be that absolutely beautiful moon, what would you say? Me. Really? Okay. <laughs> oh, buttermilk sky. Okay, so, yes. You'd rather be you. So the fact that you're not going to be here all the time, but the moon probably is, or the Blue Ridge Mountains will, or the Shenandoah will, or the Potomac will, that's kind of disturbing. You're not going to start giving me Jesus stuff, are you? <laughs> We're in the Old Testament. No, no, stick with me. Stick with me. It is kind of disturbing, right? Because we don't last. What happens to us? We die, all right? But the world's always there. Now, that is kind of disturbing. Don't you? Okay, you're the Marine. Okay. Do most of you find, how many of you find that somewhat disturbing? Okay, a few of you do. All right. I mean, wouldn't you rather stay? No. That's because you think you're going somewhere. Okay, forget it. 
Oh, these Christians. All right, so let's <laughs> stick with me. We're in the Old Testament now. All right, let's stick with this. All right. So he goes on. Now listen to what else he starts saying as he goes through this. We're on verse 5 now. The sun rises and the sun goes down. Then it presses on to the place where it rises, blowing now towards the south, then towards the north. The wind turns again and again, resuming its rounds. All rivers go to the sea, to the sea. Yet never does the sea become full. To the place where they go, the rivers keep on going. Every example he's giving there is taken from what? Creation. Creation, right? Sun, wind, rivers. What's the problem that he has with creation, with nature? Sun rises, goes down, then it comes back again. Wind blows out of the north today, out of the south tomorrow, right? Rivers always flowing to the sea. Does the sea ever get filled up? No. no. What's the problem that he's having? It's well, it's not that it's unpredictable. It seems kind of predictable, but... Yes. It doesn't get any better. It's just kind of going around and around the circle game. Around and around. Now, this guy's kind of... Look it. Depressing, right? No? Okay. But as you look out, haven't... Okay, you guys are all in the seventh mansion with Teresa of Avila. I get that. <laughs> All right, but don't you ever have days where, oh, the sun's come up, another sunny day. Yeah. It's like the weather forecast in Arizona. Sunny today, sunny tomorrow. But the wind's blowing out of the north, but it's okay, so what? Okay, it all seems cyclical. It doesn't really seem to be acting or moving towards a goal or to have a purpose. Does that, can you enter into that anyway? Okay, where he's coming from, it's a problem. It's a problem. All speech is labored. There's nothing a man can say. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. You ever said, I've heard enough? Don't answer that. But oh, yeah. When will we stop? All right. But you, know, you always want to hear more, right? You always want to see more. No one wants to lose their sight. You don't lose your hearing. All right, but there's always a need for more and more. What's the new song, right? What's the new movie? All right, so he's going through all of those things. Then he begins to think in verse 11, keeping on with the same theme. What happens? There is, look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of the men of old, nor of those to come will there be any remembrance among those who come after them. That's kind of depressing, isn't it? Let me ask you this. How many of you would like to be remembered... 500 years after your death. How many of you would like to be remembered 500 years after your death? Depends on what they remember. <laughs> okay, let's, let's reel it in. Let's reel it in. How many of you would like to be remembered 150 years after your death? If someone on the planet still remembers you, how many of you would like that? I'm the last one on my family. Okay. How many of you would like to be remembered 300 years after your death? Okay, that's good. Vanity of vanities. No, that's good. That's good. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> Alexander the Great, all right? Are most people remembered 300 years after their death? No, no. And no one studies history anymore, so it's getting even more rare, all right? George who? Oh, don't bring up the G word. We're coming to that, but okay. But you see, yeah, but you see, you go. I know where you're going, but if you just look at life... 
you know, the way he's looking, it's difficult. It's difficult. How many don't care whether they're remembered or not? Oh, really? Okay, look at wait. How many of you would like your grandchildren to remember you? That's, That's not 150 years. That's, That's not well, grandkids, well, not hundred. Okay, all right, all right. So he goes on, and he says, I, Ecclesiastes, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to search and investigate in wisdom all the things that are done under the sun. Now, this traditionally is ascribed to Solomon, the wisest man. And he sounds very pessimistic, doesn't he? About life and what's going on. And he says, I've seen all things that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a chase after the wind. It doesn't sound very scriptural, does it? Doesn't sound very inspired, all right? Then he keeps going on. He talks about all that he learned. Take a look at chapter 1, verse 18. And then he says something. For in much wisdom there is much sorrow, and he who stores up knowledge stores up grief. You think that's true? Yes. For in much wisdom there is much sorrow, and he who stores up knowledge stores up grief. Why do you think that is true? Anybody? Why do you think that's true? In much wisdom there is much sorrow. There is accountability. Who's lonely? Why lonely? Because not everyone would have that wisdom, and you would feel different and alone. Okay. Although you know the bad also. You know the bad also? Yeah, and that would be kind of depressing, wouldn't it? Yeah. There'd be sorrow in that. How many times when you see a young person going off doing something they should not be doing, and you know because you have experience, you have wisdom, this is not going to make you happy, and you love them, but you see them going off making a big mistake. Is there a lot of sorrow and wisdom? Yeah, I think that's true. I think there is. And a lot of times in knowledge, there is grief. Now he goes on in chapter 2. We kind of switch gears. You know, he's looking, pursuing wisdom. And then look at the beginning of chapter 2. He says, I said to myself, come now, let me try you with pleasure and the enjoyment of good things. But behold, this too was vanity. Of laughter, I said, mad. And of mirth, what good does this do? Have you ever had that situation where something you've wanted for a really long time and it finally happens and you're just in ecstasy? The Redskins finally, no, the Redskins finally beat the Patriots in a Super Bowl. How many of you are Redskins fans? No, but, well, it's tough. Okay. 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 Wrong crowd. Who do you like? Okay, the Washington Nationals win the World Series. Okay, all right. Nationals win the World Series, beating the New York Yankees. All right. Oh, so, okay. Sorry, sorry. Okay, beating the Boston Red Sox. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right, right. All right. So, you just the thing, game seven, or say, for example, uh, you're a Cubs fan. Remember the series the previous year? They're going against Cleveland, and you're ready to. Thank God Chicago won, because if they did, the suicide rate in Chicago would have, been, would have skyrocketed. But in that final seven game, they win, and the drought is over, and you're in the midst of this ecstasy, and right in the point where you've been waiting for years for this to happen, something comes from outside, and it hits you and said, this doesn't really matter at all. 
Notre Dame wins a national championship, and you're all excited, and then, this is so awesome, yeah, yeah, and it, this is, doesn't mean anything, really. Right in the middle of that joy, right in the middle of that incredibly great time where you're hearing a great comedy routine, or you're in a great dance, you're watching a great movie, and you're kind of into the whole thing, and you just kind of sit back and say, this is all fake, it doesn't really mean anything. Have you had that experience, okay? That's what he's talking about, all right? Laughter, mad, of mirth, what good does this do? I thought of beguiling my senses with wine, though my mind was concerned with wisdom and the taking up and falling, until I should understand what's best for men to do under the heavens during the limited days of their life. Beguiling oneself with wine, what's he talking about? Yeah, happy, happy, happy. Tiny bubbles in the wine. All right. Is that fairly common? Say so we're shifting gears now, and we're looking at pleasure. All right? He's looked at nature. He's looked at generation, the transience of human life. Things that aren't even alive seem to have permanence. Now he starts looking at pleasure. Laughter is fun, isn't it? Is mirth good? Is it great to be merry? To be happy? All right? That's why we go to bars, because it's a happy hour. Not much joy, though. Joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So anyway, okay, we'll get back to this. All right. So he goes to this. I undertook great works. I built for myself houses and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and set in them fruit trees of all sorts. And I constructed for myself reservoirs, water, flourishing woodland. I acquired male and female slaves, and slaves were born in my house. I had growing herds of cattle and flocks of sheep, more than all who had been before me in Jerusalem. I amassed for myself silver and gold and the wealth of kings and provinces. I got for myself male and female singers and all human luxuries. Remember, this is before there were CDs. Or like, you needed male and female singers because remember, music all had to be live, right? You had to bring in, that's why, you know, the first time there was a concert in Vienna, it's a huge thing because no one could record it. You just had a great orchestra performing this beautiful music. Do it again, you know? So to have singers that could sing and actually perform, that would have been an incredible pleasure, an incredible gift. And he goes on, I became great and stored up more than all others before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom too stayed with me. Nothing that my eyes desired did I deny them nor did I pride myself of any joy. But my heart rejoiced in the fruit of all my toil. This was my share for all my toil. But when I turned to all the works that my hands had wrought, and to the toil at which I had taken such pains, behold, all was vanity, and a chase after the wind with nothing gained under the sun. That's kind of tough, isn't it? Hmm. Now, he's a wise man. Those of you who read this, those of you who read this, he talks more about wisdom than anything else in this book. Did you notice that? He's always talking about wisdom. Can you find anything in the text that would illustrate what he thinks about wisdom? I mean, is wisdom really something different from everything else under the sun? Is wisdom a good thing? Should you try to get wisdom, even if it causes sorrow and stores up grief? Can you find anything in the book that would tell you that wisdom is a good thing? Anybody? Yes. 
Okay, can you give me something that says it's not a good thing? Yes. Um, chapter 2, um, this is the bystander. That's okay. For, uh, the, uh, chapter verse 16. Okay, give it, we're Catholics, give us a moment. Chapter 2, verse 16. Everyone go. Okay, 216, is that right? Yes. Okay, go ahead. For of the wise man as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise man died, just like the fool. Okay, so what's the point? Can anybody find anything that makes wisdom seem like maybe it is a, a good thing? Yes? Okay, whoa, 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 give us a second. 10-2, everyone go to 10-2 and take a look at that. What do you have in 10-2? A wise man parts and finds him toward the right. So you would think from that that wisdom is a good thing. Okay. The right's the good side. Being a lefty, I always love this passage. All right. Yes, do you have something else? Oh, some liberal. Okay, go ahead. Tell me. What's it say? footnote says it is doubtful whether the author is endorsing either direction. Oh, really? Well, would you rather be wise or a fool? No, tradition. I disagree with the footnote. I hate to do that. But I mean, I think what he's saying is the wise man is inclined to the right. The right is normally the stronger, the more proper than the left. That's why you shake hands with the right, you know, your right hand, right? Because that's the hand you grab your weapon. So it's true. It's true. Yes? I think it's very clear he's saying that um, Richard is good where he talks about how he gets all good things and like uh, acquiring male and female fingers and things like that. And then he says in verse 9, in all this, my wisdom stays with me. In all this, my wisdom's because he is wise, he gets all these things. He does all of these things. Okay, someone else? Yes? Now, you have to be loud, though. I'll try to repeat it. All right, go ahead. Oh, you want to get eschatological. All right. You think going to the right, you think he's turning to God. Okay. Anything else that you discovered in your reading where he talks about wisdom? Yes. How do you know if being wise or being foolish is, is one is truly good? Because either way, you can be wise and still make the wrong decisions. You can be foolish and still make the wrong decisions. Is one truly better than another? Well, that's what I'm asking. There are passages, believe me, there's at least 16 passages in here where he talks explicitly about wisdom because he's a wise guy and he's really caught up on wisdom. I mean, we're supposed to pursue wisdom, right? That's why one of the reasons you're here, isn't it? So what does he say? Do you have something? Go ahead. Give us a chapter and verse. Chapter 10, verse 10. Okay. 10, 10. Wisdom helps one to succeed. Wisdom helps one to succeed. Good. Does anybody else have a quote? Yes. Go ahead, Mike. 9, verse uh, 16. 9 verse 16, okay. I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. So is wisdom a good thing? Yeah? Anybody else have something that would show wisdom as being a good thing? What good is it to gain the whole world if you lose your soul? Gain all the wisdom and lose your soul. Well, if you gained all the wisdom, would you lose your soul? 
wisdom properly understood? That's a, that's a, that's a really good question. I think that's what he's kind of talking about, too. Yes. Uh, chapter 10, verse 12, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. <laughs> okay, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. So wisdom seems like a good thing. Do you have something? Who else? Okay, go ahead. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Yeah. Does he think highly of wisdom on the basis of what we've oh, talked yes. about? Yeah. Yes. All right. Now, is wisdom for Ecclesiastes, a vanity. Yes. Can you find anything in the text that says that it's a vanity? Somebody just quoted something. No, they, I don't know. Yes? Because he said all things under the sun are So you think that would include wisdom? But most, has there been anything else that he's talked about positively in the book so far? Other than wisdom does seem a little different, doesn't it? Look, at he's got problems with labor. He's got problems with creation. He's got problems with laughter, mirth, pleasure, doing great things, beautiful gardens, music, denying yourself nothing, beguiling your senses with wine, all vanity. Wisdom does give you the ability to discern what is vanity. Wisdom does give you the ability to discern what, is vanity, what vanity is. All right, but the question, yes? I still have, feel like the devil's advocate here. That's okay. It says in, in chapter 11, of verse 8, where if a man lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that all the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. It keeps me saying, but you don't end up any different than the people who don't. Except maybe you'll have more respect okay. for your So then the question, the question is, is wisdom good? Is it a vanity? Can anyone find a verse where it says that wisdom is a vanity? Chase after the wind? Yes, sir? Yes, he does. That's the question at hand. Chapter 2, 26, what does he say? Chapter 2, verse 26. Take a look at that. For to the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and he can only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving. So... Let's do democracy. How many of you think, for Ecclesiastes, on the base of what we heard, thinks that wisdom is a good thing? Okay. How many of you think it's a vanity? Can I, okay. Well, we just had a verse that indicated. Can anyone find any other verse? There was a comment, so it might just apply to part B. Yeah, that's possible. Anyone find a verse anywhere? where it speaks of wisdom as being a vanity. Yes, you have one? Yeah. Wisdom is meaningless. It says in, um, in chapter 1, actually. Um, 
Ah, okay. Let me ask you again. How many of you think for Ecclesiastes wisdom is a good thing? How many of you think it's also a vanity under the sun? Well, now this is really interesting. Wisdom is a good thing. We seem to have consensus on that. Is that right? Wisdom is a good thing for Ecclesiastes. Nevertheless, is it also a vanity? Yes. Yes. If it's coveted. So, well, now hold on for a second. So, because he calls something a vanity, does that mean that it's not good? No. Necessary, but not equal. It's not necessarily bad to say that it's a vanity. Does that make sense? That's very important, all right, as we look at what he's talking about, what he's going through. As we take a look at all of these things, he talks about wisdom. He talks about wisdom different from everything else, but at the same time, everything that's under the sun is a vanity, right? So go to chapter 3 now, just for a second. Let's just go to chapter 3. And this should remind you of a song from the 1960s. Recorded by a group called The Birds. I'm dating myself. To everything turn, turn. Okay, you got, yes, good, 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 okay. Yes. Look at Woodstock's happened. Let's stop. All right. <laughs> you guys are great. This is awesome. All right. Well, we're not singing Eight Miles High, so let's stick with this. All right. Chapter three. Chapter three. Take a look at that. He starts talking about time. There's an appointed time for everything and a time for every affair under the heavens. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot the plant, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, a time to gather them, a time to embrace, and a time to be far from embraces, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, time of war, a time of peace. What's he doing in every one of those verses? It's just contrast, right? And again, it almost seems meaning, doesn't it kind of seem meaningless? Time to love, time to hate. Time to rent, time to sow. It's just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Time is a problem for him. Is time a problem for us? Yes. We are like fish out of water in a way. Now just stick with me for a moment. When you're having a great time, what's the problem with time? It goes too fast. It zips along. And when it's really not having a good time, like right now, what's the problem with it? They're reading and I can't hear what they're saying. What, what's the problem? It's slow. It's slow. Like you're going to an insurance seminar. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. 
You know what I'm talking about, all right? So in this context, in this context, he's going through all of these things. And then right in the middle of chapter 3, he slips in this little line. Take a look at verse 11. Take a look at verse 11. He has made everything appropriate to its time and has put the timeless, sometimes translated eternal, and has placed the timeless into their hearts without men ever discovering from the beginning to the end the work which God has done. Isn't that interesting? He has put the timeless in their hearts without us ever figuring that out. The eternal is in our hearts. So what, what's he kind of saying by that? Do you see what's going on here? What's going on here? What is, what is he preoccupied with in this book? What is this book talking about? What is Ecclesiastes really all about? What's he writing about? Why is he frustrated? In a sense, because everything passes away. Is he a wise man? Yes, he is a wise man. He's an incredibly wise man. And as he looks at all of these things, what's he looking for? Look at he looks at nature, he looks at creation, he looks at work, he looks at pleasure, beguiling himself with wine, he looks at work, he looks at buying things, at owning things, at having this, having that, having a wife, having all of these things. And what does he find out about every single one of those things? Chase, chase them. It's a chase after the wind. Why? That's right. Because nothing Nothing will, is permanent. Nothing is permanent. Nothing. Is that important to reflect about? Okay, now just think for a second. Think for a second. He's a wise man. In the middle of all these questions, what is the guy searching for? What's he seeking? That's right. There is this sense of timelessness. There is this sense of the eternal. And because God put that in us, all we've experienced in this world is what? Change. And what does he call it in the book? Vanity. Well, in this context, time, right? Everything's change, change, change. And yet there's something very deep inside of us that does not change. We have a knowledge of the eternal. We have a knowledge of the changeless. And so as he's a wise man, he's discovered that what dwells inside of us? What are we longing for? Well, you want to say he, God's there, but what do you want? What do we all want? Permanence, right? We want something that's going to last. What woman's going to respond to a proposal that a young man gives said, I will love you for six months, three weeks, two days, and five hours? Get lost, loser. <laughs> That's why all the great love songs, all the great poems always echo what? Forever. Eternity. That's what we're always seeking. And so what is every human being seeking? What is every, don't say God. You're, you're probably right ultimately. But whether you're an atheist or a believer what do we all seek as human beings? Eternity. Think for a second. Think for a second. 
What do you want? Yeah, probably love. Yeah, that's a good answer. Every human being wants this. I think kind of eternity. Permanence? Yeah, I, okay. Bingo. Now, once you get into happiness, that includes love, right? And what kind of love? Permanent love. Eternal love. All right? And so everyone's seeking happiness. Is Ecclesiastes seeking happiness? Fundamentally, this book is about what question? What's he seeking? He's seeking happiness. But you're only going to find happiness if you have wisdom and you understand, right? You understand. And so he's looking at all of these things. And what does he find about, about all of these things under the sun? What's the problem with all these things under the sun? They're fleeting, they don't last, they are transient. Therefore, what can't they do? They cannot make you happy. Fully, can they make you happy for a little bit? Yes, but they can never make you fully and completely happy in this life. Because what do you have inside? There is this sense of the eternal but for most people they spend all of their time working on their christmas list <laughs> you seen the poster with a big mansion overlooking the ocean with a bmw parked in the front world peace and this you know? whoever dies with the most toys wins at the end you know what i'm talking about did you ever see a u-haul behind a hearst <laughs> Don't think so. All right. So what he's doing here that is so beautiful, he's looking for all of these things because the fundamental question that he's striving to understand is, what is the meaning of life? What are all these things? And so many people take the things and make them eternal. If I only had my Beamer, if I only had a Mercedes, then I'd be truly happy. But you know, as soon as you get that Mercedes and you've driven it for one week, you know what's gonna happen? You don't want something else. You get your, your dumb phone nine or whatever it is. <laughs> and then there's gonna be a 10, and then there'll be an 11 and a 12, and it just goes on, and you get it, and you know what? But this is a big problem even in terms of human relationships, right? I married you. You're supposed to make me supremely happy. But can anyone make you supremely happy? Not under the sun. Not on this earth. Does that make sense? So he's probed his mind in wisdom. And this is why this is so timely, because most of our world, even at this time of the year, is feverishly going out looking for what? Material things. Happiness. Trying to find happiness in things. That's why consumerism, look, and I'm all for Christmas presents, don't get me wrong, but consumerism has become the new religion, hasn't it? You judge in the old days, you would judge a city by its cathedral, right? You go to an old European city, the center, the highest point was the great cathedral. You were feeling down, that's where you went. If you're feeling down, where do you go today? You go to the mall, and you get a Starbucks, all right? And there's nothing worse, than, I'm not advocating Starbucks, and there's nothing worse than going to the mall and not buying it. You have to participate in the liturgy. 
<laughs> you know, you gotta buy something. Look, at, you understand what I'm saying? It's like, this has become the new thing. I'm not against, you know, help the economy, it's fine. But you know what I'm saying? So even going, you just buy your salted pretzel, so you have something, I don't know, it's a success, you know, and you feel like you're participating in the whole thing. So what he's doing, what he's trying to do is saying, look at, I thought about all of these things deeply, and I've looked at all of them, and you know what? I, nothing lasts, and therefore nothing is the supreme good. No human being can make you supremely happy. No thing under the great house. Happy for a little bit, but it won't fulfill you completely, right? Beautiful song, magnificent, won't fill you up completely, right? Great movie, won't fill you up completely. So he's not really a pessimist. What he really is is what? He's a realist. He's saying, if you try to find your meaning and your purpose in things, it's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen because God, unbeknownst to all of us, because we're just born in time, all we know is time, and yet everybody in this room has a sense of the eternal. Does that make sense? And so that's what he's talking about. And so in a very real way, it's anticipating something that the great Augustine who tried everything but Catholicism and finally landed there, thanks to the prayer of his mother, Monica, when he finally says, you, you know, you have made our hearts restless and they will not rest until they rest in thee. And that's what he's trying to do. That's what he's trying to do. And yet he lives B.C., and that's part of the problem. That's a big part of the problem. So if you go to chapter 11, he starts giving you some advice. Starts giving you advice in chapter 11. Take a look at verse 9. My edition may be numbered differently, but there's a line that says, Rejoice, O young man. Do you see where I am? Verse 9. Let's take a look at that. Chapter 11, verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, while you are young, and let your heart be glad in the days of your youth. It's a great thing to be young, isn't it? Yeah. And should you rejoice in youth? One of my favorite lines in the movie Braveheart. Your heart is free. Have the courage to follow it. There's a time when you're young, you know, and life is beautiful and things are great, and you're in the full flush of that, and you can stay up till 2 in the morning and still get up at 6, and you can kind of be okay, you know? Those days are gone. All right, so anyway. <laughs> but that type of thing, all right? So he goes on. Follow the ways of your heart and the vision of your eyes. Yet, understand that as regards all this, God will bring you to judgment. Ward off grief from your heart and put away trouble from your presence, though the dawn of youth is fleeting. All right? Youth is a dawn, right? It's beautiful, it's wonderful, but it's fleeting. It doesn't last long. See, he's a wise man. He's looking back on his life. And is this a good thing for young people to read? Okay? Because remember, it's fleeting. It's fleeting. And he goes on to say, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. Most of the time at church, who do you find at church? Older people, right? But he's saying, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Think about him. Remember him before the evil days come and the years approach which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Because, of course, if you are living simply for 
pleasure for things, if you're an Epicurean, all right, then eventually what's going to happen as you get older? Begin to lose all those, right? Thank God. Then I remember there's a, I read with my students out of Christendom a book by, we do this, but we do Cicero also, his book on old age, which I highly recommend, very short, Cicero's on old age, where they ask Sophocles, you know, he says, they asked him, do you still make love? And he said, thank God, no, I gave that up years ago. <laughs> and, it was, and it was just like, who would say that today? You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just, we live in a crazy time. We live in a crazy time. So he goes on. Before the sun is darkened and the light and the moon and the stars. All right? They're darkened because what begins to fail? The eyesight. All right? While the clouds return after the rain. There comes a point where the health is not going to get better. All right? The it rains. And yeah, the sun comes up. But then the clouds come back again. When the guardians of the house tremble and strong men are bent. And the grinders, that's the teeth, are idle because they are few. And they who look through the windows grow blind because you're losing your sight. And the doors to the street are shut and the sound of the mill is low and one waits for the chirp of a bird, but all the daughters of song are suppressed because why? You can't hear anymore. When the almond tree blooms and the locust grows sluggish and the caper berry is destroyed because man goes to his lasting home and mourners go about in the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken and the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the broken pulley falls into the well and the dust returns to the earth as it once was and the life breath returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says Ecclesiastes, all are vanity. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, now a couple of things for those of you who have Bibles. I need people's help here. Can someone who has a Bible look up chapter 3, verse 22? Can I see a hand? Don't, you don't have to do it, but someone say yes. If you have a Bible, can you look up chapter 3, verse 22? When you have it, put up your hand. Got it? Got it? Okay, hang on to that. Can someone look at chapter 6, verse 12? Got it? Got it? Okay, you got 612. Can you take 612? Hold on to that. Someone take a look at chapter 7, verse 24. You've got it? 724. Someone take a look at chapter 8, verse 58. Anyone go to 858? You guys are good. This is very impressive. What? Chapter 8, verse 58? Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. Chapter 8, verse 528. You're right. I'm the apocryphal text. You've got that? You've got it? Okay. That's great. I didn't see the dash. Sorry. You know, the windows are, okay. <laughs> Chapter 10, verse 14. Anybody got that? Okay, 10, 14, you've got that. And 11, 5. Who's got 11, 5? You've got 11, 5. All right. Can someone, whoever owns 322, read that for me? And, and I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to rejoice in his work, for this is his lot. Who will let him see what is to come after him? Okay. Can someone read 612? Well, who knows what is good for man while he lives a few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Well, who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Okay, do we have another quote? Who's got another verse? 
What's the next one? Okay, someone read that. Go ahead, Mike. He who obeys a command will meet no harm. And the mind of a wise man will know the time and way. For every matter has its time and way. Although man's trouble lies heavy upon him, for he does, does not know what is to be, for he can tell him how it will be. For who can tell him how it will be? Power to retain the spirit, for authority over the day of death. There is no discharge for war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Okay, hold on. What's, what chapter was that? 7, 8, 5 through 8. That's 8, 5 through 8. Okay, 7.24. Anyone got 7.24? Yes, go ahead. What exists is far-reaching. It is deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Fine. 10.14. Precious man multiplies the world. No man knows what is to be. And who will tell him what will be after Okay. Hmm. Hmm, hmm, hmm. All right, 11.5. As you do not know how the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Every one of those verses, what's the problem? We don't know. Who? Who knows? Who can tell us? Who? Who? How? Who? Who? It's not an accident that we're doing this book on the first Sunday in Advent, right? Because Ecclesiastes is a wise man, and he came to see incredible things, didn't he, right? That everything under the sun ends, that there's this eternal longing in our heart. And yet the one thing, and he knows that there's this eternal longing, but what doesn't he know? For all his wisdom, what doesn't he know? What's going to happen? He doesn't know what's going to happen, and he doesn't. Who can tell us? Who can tell us? Who is he searching for? Who is he waiting for? Who is he longing for? He wants the. It's Christ, right? It's the soul longing for Christ. He went as far as he could go with wisdom on its own, and it went pretty high. But does it go far enough? Because we long for the eternal. And eventually there's going to come someone who's going to talk about eternal life. And what will happen after. And once you get a sense of what's going to happen after, then everything else falls in its place proportionately. Does that make sense to everybody? So, this Virgil, remember that I start off with that, the tears of things? Virgil didn't know Christ. And yet he felt this deep longing. All right? In many ways, that's the state of our world right now. Ecclesiastes searching for wisdom, and he grasped a certain wisdom, but even wisdom can't satisfy the deepest longing of the human heart, right? Because you want the eternal, and you need to know what's going to happen afterwards, right? Job, remember the book of Job, questioning, 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 what's going on afterwards? Even the Canticle of Canticles, remember the author, the inspired author of Canticle of Canticles came out and said, Love is as strong as death. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's getting close to things. Love, true love, is as strong as death. There has always been a longing in the human heart for what? For light to overcome darkness. For love to overcome hatred. And for life to overcome death. 
This is something we've always longed for and we have always sought. So tonight, sort of pulling this all together as we enter into the mystery of Advent with Solomon's Ecclesiastes, we're all reminded that there is such a thing as a pure white light that does in fact give an answer. Remember that beautiful passage, for who is she that cometh fair as the morning rising? It's interesting to note that just about nine months ago, Mary's fiat was a harbinger of the dawn that we're all ready to approach now. We're anxious to approach on this first Sunday in Advent. And Holy Mother Church mystically speaks of Mary as the morning star. I've always loved that image. Mary as the morning star. Rising in these dark days, you know, you have this sort of luminous, shimmering star on the horizon of our lives. And how she, as our mother, must long to really rise in our hearts. She wants to be part of who we are. And she wants to herald the dawn of a new day. And she really is a beacon of hope because she's reminding us all, as that morning star that the dominance of night, which can seem so oppressive at this time of year, is really coming to an end. In just five days from now, five days from today, we're all going to be celebrating, along with the entire Catholic world, her sinless purity from the very first moment of her conception. And in that sinlessness and in that purity, she is going to be leading and beckoning us to the heaven-sent answer the one that Ecclesiastes did not know, that Virgil did not know, that Seneca did not know. It's the only answer to sin, to tragedy, to disappointment, uh, to loss. It's the only thing that really gives meaning to life. In the light of her maternal love, she's sort of dispelling that, that sort of nameless, empty void that's always sort of hovering over our world. But she's going to bring with that light a supernatural joy to the world. She's a good and loving mother. She reminds us all that the night is not eternal. Darkness and evil have a limit, and they will come an end to all of that. Because we know now the great secret revealed to us in what became known as Evangelion, good news. Right? I am the way. I am the truth, I am the life. He who believes in me will not walk in darkness, but has the gift of light. And that light was the light of men. I am the bread of life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will not die, but will have eternal life. This is what all the pagans were longing for. This is what the Jews before the time of Christ, that's why when the news comes and the gospel is preached, it, it's overwhelming. It's good news and it remains news. Remember, news is current, right? News is current. This is not something old that happened 2,000 years ago. The news of our salvation, the news of Mary as the morning star about to give birth to light in our world is brand new. And if we think about it, I think this is true of every mother that's ever had a baby. Uh, the incredible joy that comes when you're holding a baby. And yet there comes a time, I'm sure, when you're holding that baby and you're looking at that baby and you're thinking, you know, it's really sad. There is so much cruelty in the world. 
you know, holding an innocent, beautiful little child, and you think of the cruelty in the world, and that thinking in a very real sense that that precious child you're holding, like every child, must in some way bear the burden of sin, right? Everyone's going to be affected by that, even that beautiful little baby, so precious. And surely Our Lady knew this was the case, because she knew all the Jewish prophecies. She knew the Psalms, right? That her little son would come to bear it like no other would or could. And yet she rejoiced in him because he's bringing light. He's bringing life to our darkened world. And she knew that she was going to be his home. She was going to be his food. She was going to be the warmth to keep him warm on that night. She was going to be his life because she had the great gift of holding heaven in her arms, right? She didn't have to look up. She could look down and just look. That was heaven. Think every time she raised that child to give that child a kiss, the very breath of heaven would blow on her cheek. What an incredible gift. What a gift we have all been given. So my hope and pray is a fruit of our reflection, our mutual reflection, despite discussion and not being able to hear sometimes, is that we reflect on the incredible gift we've been given. Ecclesiastes took us so far, but he didn't get to see what we see and what we know. And this is an incredible gift. And as participants in this great Institute of Catholic Culture, during this Advent, share that light with someone. At the store, at, at, at coffee, wherever you are, bring it up. And if someone says happy holidays to you, say Merry Christmas, God bless you. God bless you all, thank you for listening to me. An absolute delight, absolute delight. Thank you so much, Dr. Thank you. Really Thank appreciate you. it. I know it's a faux pas to uh, compliment someone in the, in, while you're still in their presence, but I don't know about you guys, but unlike the writer right, that we studied tonight, I would, have minded, I would not have minded if this went on and on and on. It's an absolute delight. Yeah, absolute delight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the mark of a master teacher to be able to open up discussion. It's a lot easier to just read through your itinerary in a lecture format. It's a whole nother game to um, bring you along with, with the speaker and, you know, on a shared journey towards the truth. Right. And uh, I think when I think of a, a, a place that I would want to send my kid, if I knew that a college had a man like Dr. O'Donnell running it, that gives me great confidence, okay? I just want to mention Christian College. I know uh, many of you guys are already familiar with uh, Father Hezekiah's journey, uh, but he traveled all the way from California, got in a car and drove all the way over here to study at Christian College. And to education, he'll tell you this till today, the education he got in undergrad there was life-changing, life-changing. And I think you see a glimpse of that tonight. I'm just such a joy, yeah. It's been said that um, when you see someone who is uh, of great character, uh, the sort of most appropriate thing to say is that they have been raised well, 
right? They've been raised well. Um, it's the parents that form that person. Um, another way to look at this is that the, the virtue of the parent transmits to the child. And just sort of as an off-the-cuff uh, comment here, I was recently on jury duty. Um, it was about a couple months ago. And um, it was a long night. It was the first time I was ever on jury duty. <laughs> and uh, ultimately, we came to the right decision. And throughout the night, there was um, this guy who I just kind of like got this sense he's on the right side. <laughs> I just tried to stay close to him, was reading an interesting book, uh, dressed in sort of a, a dignified way, was carrying conversation with the people around him. And uh, you would never guess whose son he was uh, or who his father was. And it was um, uh, Niall O'Donnell. I don't know if you knew this. I was, I was in uh, jury duty with him. But yeah, yeah, exactly. You didn't know. But I bring this up actually because I had a conversation with him over the phone. And um, we, he actually discusses logistics for um, us having promotional material up for Christendom. And we were talking, and then he, he goes, Wait a second, were you on jury duty a couple of weeks ago? And I said, <laughs> Yeah, wait, that was you? And he said, yeah. And he said, you know, you can smell a Catholic a mile away. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. Um, I don't know if that's true, right, for across the board, right? And this is sort of what the ICC is all about. It's going to be a weird tagline, but making smelly Catholics, right? <laughs> right? Um, it, the, the fact that... Um, the, you know, the, the teachings and the truths that we receive, it should transmit into some sort of, you know, external reality that people can perceive even beyond our words. We don't have to be saying something explicitly about the gospel, but we're certainly called to do that at times. But it should be the fact that even in some sort of situation or activity that doesn't have a direct relation to, um, you know, to Christianity, of course, there's connections with the law system, I know. But on the surface, it doesn't seem like there's a connection to be able to pick up that someone is a man of faith that bespeaks of their interior life, right? And the hope is that as we gather together, that's the type of Catholics we are becoming, that we're able to be a source of light to others in, you know, everyday experiences that you would least expect it. Right. Um, and just a couple other thoughts here is that I, I think there's great insight into right, we we're talking about wisdom and knowledge as a good thing, but it's not the final end. Right. And I j just to offer sort of something for your consideration here, um, what we we would all in this mission together with Institute would fail if at the end of it all, we said the number one reason we love the Institute was because we learned more stuff about the faith. It's not supposed to end with knowledge. If at the end of the day, we're coming here because we want to learn more, don't get me wrong, it's going to sound a little off, but you're here for the wrong reason. Because we're not here to just learn more. We're here to fall in love with our Lord and then bring that love and share it with others. And a thought connected to this, I can offer it again, is something that may seem a little bit odd, as sort of an internal check on ourselves, what are we more excited about? A new series of talks that's going to come around the corner or the Christmas fundraising drive? I say this because what's the purpose of that fundraising drive? To share this with others, right? And something to sort of consider it 
internally, right? It, we actually should be, and I know it sounds weird, we should be more jazzed up about a fundraising drive than the next great talk that's coming, you know, with Monsignor Pope or Dr. O'Donnell or whatever, you name it, because that's not the end. The end is to share this with others. Okay, so if you've got a question, just go ahead, raise your hand, and they'll come right to you. All right, Bob. All right. We, we know that Solomon ended up failing the three things he wasn't supposed to do, he did. Uh, curious, actually, we don't remember how he actually died, number one. And number two, do we have more wisdom than Solomon because of this? Uh, yes. <laughs> he was considered the wisest of men, but of course, the God-man comes, and that's wisdom incarnate. And so, insofar as we imbibe that and participate in the wisdom that the Son of God has brought to us, absolutely. Uh, I forget where it was, but there was a, uh, a passage somewhere in St. Thomas where he said, a simple French peasant woman, this is like in the 13th century, who as she hears the Angelus bell ringing in her village church and simply makes the sign of the cross, has achieved a higher level of wisdom than the greatest of the pagan philosophers of antiquity, than Plato and Aristotle, because she is acknowledging the triune nature of the Godhead. So, yes. He listened to his wives. He was foolish at the end. Yeah. He, had, he had too many. All right. Yeah. Dr. O'Donnell, thank you so much for a great talk. Thank um, you. I was wondering uh, about the ascetical tradition of being a fool for Christ. We talked a lot about pursuing wisdom and foolishness. How uh, can we further read into Ecclesiastes, um, knowing the lives of the fools for Christ and vice versa? That's a great question. Well, I think in the, in the New Testament, there's sort of a paradox there. Sort of like St. Paul says, we are zealous fools for Christ's sake. But we're fools in the sense of a worldly wisdom, you know? But it's really a heavenly wisdom. See, the divine foolishness is really a divine wisdom. It's only foolishness in the eyes of the world, you know? The world is going after power, fame, glory, money, success. Those aren't bad things, all right? But a lot of times they sort of worship them so that someone who maybe for the sake of family would sacrifice some of those things because that's more important, that would be foolish in a worldly sense. But from a Christian sense, it would not be. It'd be totally wise. So the question is, what, are, what, what type of wisdom we're really following? Are we following a worldly type of wisdom that is really contrary to the spirit of the gospel? Or do we stay with the heavenly wisdom that the world may think is foolish, but ultimately, no, leads to our salvation and to our happiness? Okay, good question. For all of his wisdom, he seems very pessimistic and doesn't seem to gaining the wisdom from all the things that God has already done for the Jewish people. Do you have a, a feel for why that is? Yeah, I think if you have to read the whole book prayerfully and slowly. And that's why I gave you those like seven passages. There's other ones like, who knows? Who can tell? Who can determine? He's really longing. He gets a sense that there is an incompleteness. But I think the power of what he's doing is he is really wise. And so what he's doing is he's sharing what he has found in his life because there's a lot of people that are going to get stuck in chapter 2 on the pleasure thing and spend 50, 60 years 
just doing the pleasure thing, trying to find fulfillment and happiness and trying to satisfy that whatever that is inside that keeps pushing you more and more and more instead of realizing it's not found under the sun. We're made for God. So I, I think in a certain sense, there's a real, a stark realism. We, I'd call it kind of like tough love. So he's taking you through this and showing it's not it. It's not it. Now, in the full joy of your youth, yeah, but this is really great. He's not saying it's not great. He said he did all of those things. But if you take those things and elevate them and put them in a position where, you're, where really God should be, then you got a problem. It's like when our Lord says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you spend 95% of your time making money and working, working, and your prayer is only 5% of your life, don't tell me God's your treasure. Now, I'm not saying don't work hard. I mean, you, you need to work hard, but then that needs to be sacramentalized. Does, does that help? Yeah. So I think there's a real stark realism. He's trying to be helpful. Tough love. Yeah. I love the book. Depressing, but I love it because it, it wakes you up. Yes. Two, two part question. One, uh, in the perspective of under the sun and everything is vanity on that perspective, do you, have you found that useful as sort of a secular throwing of the gauntlet to say, all right, buddy, let's come up with a philosophy outside a divine perspective, part one. And secondly, comment on the recurring theme throughout there of satisfaction in work, deeds, devotion to your wife. There's sort of this bucolic, yeah. simple existence that is yeah. like a pathway to a sort of happiness yeah. in this world. That's a great question. I think this is a great book to give to someone who's secular. I really do, because it raises the fundamental question. The fundamental question of this book is, what is the meaning of life? What's it all about, Alfie? And it's not anything under the sun. And if, sorry. And if you think it is, you're really mistaken. So I think that's part of the, that's part of the beauty. So yes, I would definitely give it. But there's three times where he says, there's nothing better for a man than to eat, drink, and be merry, and enjoy the fruits of his labor with his wife, because he always recognizes that those things are gifts from God. If you get it that they're gifts from God, then you don't deserve it. A gift is something that is freely bestowed. That's why Christmas is so incredible. He comes, you know. He freely gives everything, all right? And so that's, that's part of the whole beauty. So he recognizes all those things that he got were actually gifts from God. And therefore, since they're gifts, you take them and you enjoy them. But then you have to enjoy them in a temperate way because goods can be abused, right? Especially if they're elevated to become more than they should be. And they begin to take over our lives. I mean, do you own possessions or do the possessions own you? right? A lot of times with the wealth, you're up all night worrying about your car, worrying about your stocks. I mean, is this really what it's all about, you know? And so who's in charge here? Who's controlling who? So these questions are the fundamental questions that I think are tormenting human society. And especially as we come, become increasingly secularized and God is marginalized, then these other things, there's a gap, there's that, there's that vacuum, and we want to fill it up, all right? And that's why, you know, if God only speaks in silence, that's why it's really sad that everyone's going around with headphones on. You go to New York City, it's amazing there are more people hit by cars. Everyone's in their own world. And, you know, you've got music. I love music, but it's like all the time, everywhere, everywhere, there's just noise, 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 noise. And to actually sit in silence 
maybe with his word and let him speak through the word that you're reading and spend time in silence, then you can hear. Everyone says, oh, I want to grow in my spiritual life, you know, but we do all the talking, <laughs> you know, but that means you've got to be patient. He's a lover. He does not impose. So to be silent and to wait upon the Lord, and a lot of times you need that kind of quiet to let all the video and the DVDs, everything kind of play out in your head so you can actually, actually be quiet and be with him. But so many times, like with the secular world, the receiver's not tuned to the right frequency, you know? And so you're not getting him because it's just filled with so much noise. So I think great for the secular world because it recognizes that they're good, they should be enjoyed, eat, drink, be merry, and all that stuff, but recognizing that they're gifts and that these will come to an end. And if you make those your life, you're going to be very miserable at the end because all of those things are going to be taken away from you. But there's one thing that won't be taken away from you. You get to make that big step and go, yeah. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Ardano. Okay. I really all appreciate right. Thank that. you very much. God bless you all. Happy Advent. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, feel free to stick around and uh, hang out and have a safe drive home. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.